Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will ask the question, how do you feel about mold, rot, and paint peeling in your house? Special guest, Bill Lotz of William A. Lotz Consulting Engineers in Acton, Maine. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host, Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey, everybody. Tim Fowler here. And welcome to another It's Gonna Be a Fun One episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Again, keep your ideas coming in. Uh, This guest today was actually submitted by one of our listeners from British Columbia, And so we do pay attention when you send us an email about potential guests and the possibility of topics. So we're back on to a really, really important technical issue. An awful lot of our podcasts have been about managing jobs and managing business and, you know, the the skills gap and all those kinds of things. Today, we're talking about, uh, basically, we're talking about building science. And as I've stated a couple of times, building science has come a long, long way in the last 20 years. And there's uh, many, many folks who have contributed to our understanding, as we suggested with the title, mold, rot, mildew, paint peeling, all those things that happen in a house. And there have been a lot of people working on it. Our guest today actually been working on it longer than that and has years and years and years of experience. And so uh, mostly what we're talking about is mold, moisture, ventilation, uh, those kinds of things. Now, I started hearing about this uh, back in, I think it was 1994 or so, I started going to what is now called the Journal of Light Construction Live or JLC Live shows. And I would be there talking about job management And I would get to go sit in on other classes. And I'm hearing people talk about moisture meters and vapor barriers and things that even though, and I hate to admit this publicly, I'd been, you know, building some houses and doing some renovations. And I didn't know about this stuff, which is common for a lot of people in our industry. They get in, they start working. And then after the fact, they start learning these things. And When I first started going to those seminars, I had some real problems with some hardwood floors and a couple of uh, new homes. They had just swelled up. And then, of course, when they dried up, big cracks, and I couldn't understand it. We never had a problem like this in our remodeling uh, projects, but in our new homes, we had two of them and sat in on a seminar on wood floors and moisture meters, and boy, was I ever educated that day. And so it's uh, just exciting to have another expert on the show. So after many years of uh, troubleshooting, uh, looking at mistakes that people like me have made, and he comes in, you know, years after us and goes, okay, this is the problem uh, that we've seen. Our guest today has just finished a book, which he'll tell us a little bit more about later on, but I believe it's 
a great deal of the knowledge that he's accumulated over the many, many years of troubleshooting things, which proves two things, okay? These issues can be dealt with through proper building practices, and you're never too old to do new things. Steve, let's get started. All right, so Bill Lotz, PE, has his professional engineer's license in eight states and is the owner of William A. Lotz Consulting Engineers. Bill has published more than 300 technical articles, mostly on heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, insulation, and moisture issues. He has consulted on over 2,000 buildings with various moisture insulation system failures from Honolulu to Maine to Miami to Texas. He's designed hundreds of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning insulation systems, plumbing systems, and sprinkler systems for residences and commercial buildings. He has been appointed by three governors to the Maine Licensing Board for Professional Engineers and is also a fellow and life member of the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I've had a lot of fun over the years. My life has been very carefully involved with insulation, vapor barriers, and moisture. Uh, in fact, my family started in the insulation contracting business back in 1910. Wow. And there have been a, a the whole Lots family has been involved with insulation. And uh, when back in years ago, when I had red hair, I went to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass, the largest manufacturer of insulation uh, in the world, I believe, and had a fun time there being responsible for product development, technical service, and testing of all kinds of insulations under all kinds of circumstances. And I started publishing papers on these issues back in the 1960s. Wow. Like I say, back when I had red hair. <laughs> That's <laughs> hey, Bill? been a while. Yeah. Hey, Bill, back when your family started insulation, was that when they were stuffing newspapers in the walls? Is that, is that was, in, was that insulation back then? Well, you know, in the early days, uh, it was very popular to use ground up corn cobs. Oh, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, to use uh, uh, secondhand newspapers. Yeah. And of course, in my father's day, the major insulation was asbestos. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. And uh, I cut my teeth installing asbestos in all kinds of buildings. Wow. Uh, my my father, before he he died, uh, he was responsible for insulating twenty thousand buildings in New England. So where did you actually uh, grow up? I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford. Okay. All right. And so since go ahead. Since then, I've, I've lived in a number of states uh, following the construction industry around for a while. I was dealing with nuclear power plant issues, and I've dealt with small houses. I've dealt with mansions. I've worked for David Rockefeller. Uh, I've done consulting work for DuPont, for Procter & Gamble, and uh, believe it or not, Bechtel, who is the largest engineering construction firm in the world, with umpteen billion dollars worth of uh, engineering work, they had to hire me because they didn't have any expert in moisture problems. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I, I did some work for them on a couple of trash to energy plants 
that basically the building self-destructed after six years due to excessive moisture, and they were metal buildings, and they corroded severely in yeah. six years. Wow. But uh, like I say, I've had a lot of fun. I've done a lot of interesting pro- projects. I've done a lot of consulting on refrigerated warehouses, on pipe insulation, and uh, as you said earlier, I've consulted on over 2,000 buildings that had severe insulation slash moisture problems. So Bill, and, what about, what is your business now? And, and just understand that most of our listeners are residential contractors. And so, so when you're with your business now, how does that relate to residential contracting? Okay. Over the years, I've worked for dozens and dozens of insurance companies and attorneys all over the U S When a homeowner has a severe problem with their building, they, of course, the first thing they do is hire a lawyer and try to sue everybody in town. And I end up getting called in as the expert witness on why did this happen and what do you got to do to fix it? And uh, I've literally had a couple of buildings, (coughs) pardon me, a couple of buildings over the years where I recommended tear the building down and burn it, call in the fire department and burn it down because the mold was so severe, I didn't see any way to solve the problem. Yeah. Have you, have you, I know a contractor in the Connecticut area who uh, believes that he contracted blindness by being exposed to black mold in a house. Have you heard of those kinds of illnesses from mold? Well, uh, uh, most people are fairly resistant to mold issues. Yeah. Uh, there are other people that have sensitivities. Yep. Uh, I uh, Several years ago, I was doing a, a major cons- a consultation in Bay City, Texas, in a nursing home. And after several days there in the nursing home, I started coughing big time, came uh-huh. home and spent nine days in the hospital because my body was just really upset about being involved with mold so much. Wow. That's that's unusual, but it happened to me. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I I, I just know. I guess I've heard that people react differently uh, in yeah. different situations. So, so now you live in Maine. Um, yep. And you mentioned that you've been to many, many, many of the states looking at various problems. The whole moisture, mold, ventilation issues. Is it different? Uh, in in regional, differently across the United States? What are some of the differences between like New England and the Southwest or the Southeast or that sort of thing? Okay, the uh, states in the upper tiers of New England, across the Montana, North Dakota, and into Canada, there you've got to have a, a good solid vapor barrier on the warm side of the insulation but you get south of, uh, in the United States, say in South Carolina or Texas or Louisiana or Florida, it's a totally different situation. Because up here in God's country, uh, in the cold country, uh, the moisture problems are coming from the inside of the building, uh, from the people and, and the uh, effects of people with uh, moisture uh bathing and cooking and so forth and and uh but down in the south 
the moisture is coming from Mother Nature, from outdoors. And for a long, long time, I did a lot of work down in Texas and Florida because the contractors there frequently from the north, and they were building a building like they did up here, but the vapor barrier said <coughs> was on the wrong side of the wall. And, boy, does that cause problems. Uh, I've had cases where some of the framing had turned to mush. Oh, wow. And uh, was no longer structurally viable uh, down in the south country because the contractors were either dealing with no vapor barrier or putting it on the wrong side. And, for instance, in the southern tiers of the country, uh, it's very popular to put on vinyl wall covering instead of wallpaper. And that becomes a vapor barrier on the warm side of the wall or the uh, cold side of the wall. And, oh, boy, does that cause problems, so some expensive problems. So what so, you're saying is the vapor barrier on, in the northern tier goes inside the house? Yeah. Is that what you're, you say? Okay. And then yeah, in, uh, the southern, in the southern tier, it's going to go on the outside. Right. And the, the basic thing that's the same, uh, Tim and, and Steve, is that the vapor barrier's got to be on the warm side of the insulation. And that I actually wrote that down. <laughs> Good. And uh, in in Miami or in Jacksonville, uh, the warm side of the insulation is on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then everybody says, "Well, what do we do in St. Louis or in Washington D.C.?" And that's fairly simple. We put on a vapor barrier that's two, basically two sided. Uh, I frequently recommend for that climate area a uh, foil-faced ISO uh, insulation board, which has got a foil on both sides, and that works beautifully in that climate because you've got a vapor barrier on both sides of the insulation, and so you got it coming and going. Wow. Yeah, because I was just going to ask, like, what about that middle part of the country that isn't, you know, in the, in yep. the summertime, the moisture is all outside in the wintertime. You know, it's moist inside, but dry outside. So it's a, a, a challenge. Yep. And uh, then there's places like Arizona and uh, Los Angeles that basically don't have moisture problems because <coughs> the temperature is always between 75 and 85 with minimal moisture on the outside. And you, I just don't get any calls from that part of the country that they have moisture issues. Right. So does does mechanical uh, air exchangers, I should say, do mechanical air exchangers help some with this problem of, of moisture and, and interior? Yes. Yes, absolutely yes. And in, when I was doing uh, a lot of HVAC design work, I made sure that uh, I was including an air-to-air -air heat exchanger as part of the HVAC design. Yeah, I've heard and a I, lot about them. I don't know much about them because I haven't built projects that had them, but uh, I've heard they're super for these kinds of things. I had one uh, large-scale house in Connecticut where uh, they I designed the house with three different air-to-air -air heat exchangers, a, a large house. Right. And they, they called me in a year later and said, we're having a terrible moisture problem. Your system ain't working. 
Wow. And <clears throat> pardon me, I have a chronic cough. But so I started looking around at the air-to-air heat exchangers that I designed, and they never changed the filters, the air filters. <laughs> were all plugged up solid. Yeah. Plugged up. And so I said, when was the last time you changed the filters in the air system? He said, what filters? <laughs> he didn't even realize there were filters. Yeah, this oh. is a big, big problem that a lot of contractors end up with without going through a a project and and teaching their clients all the new equipment because yep. it happens with air conditioning systems, heating air conditioning systems quite often. Yep. And another issue I see quite regularly is uh, fiberglass insulation with the usual residential vapor barrier, which I have to add is very super combustible. It is explosively combustible. And the code forever said when you use that product, the vapor barrier has got to be covered with a fire barrier, either sheetrock or whatever, to make sure that it's not accessible to any flame or sparks. And uh, I went into a brand-new fire station in uh, New Hampshire, uh, just finished construction, and the chief called me and, and had some questions, so I went down to look at it. And here in this brand-new fire station, and this was just a couple of years ago, uh, we opened the door to the attic and walked in, and here's that paper facer on fiberglass, and it says and constantly, every 24 inches in red, do not leave this exposed. So I said, Chief, this is a code violation. He said, it can't be. And I said, well, I happened to notice the code book on your desk before we came up into the attic. And he said, well, I've never seen that in the code. So I opened the code book to, I think it's uh, section 728 or something like that, and said, see, it says never do this. <laughs> he, had, he had some choice words for his contractor, which I will not repeat. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. So that, that, paper, that paper face, now I've seen... You know, some contractors staple it on the inside of the stud, some staple it on the outside of the stud. And if I'm hearing you right, even when you cover that with drywall, that's the fire barrier. But is that really the va is that really a successful vapor barrier as well? Absolutely not, because okay. uh, for one thing, uh, in all those years I spent at Owens Corning Fiberglass. One of the things I was responsible for was vapor barriers. And I can say without uh, being worried about their jumping on me, the, the vapor barrier on residential fiberglass bats is absolutely worthless uh, because you've got a joint every 16 inches or 24 inches, and that joint is never sealed with tape, which makes that just a worthless as a vapor barrier. Uh, plus, you add in this issue of it being... Uh, explosively combustible, and I tried for years to get them not to use the product, you know, just to sell uh, bare naked bats. Right. Uh, they, the industry somehow or other seems dedicated to selling that stuff. Uh, again, I will try, my wording has got to be careful here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I am uh, just a firm believer that you use naked uh, plain fiberglass bats 
and then cover it with a polyethylene vapor barrier, seal the joints in the polyethylene, and then cover it with sheetrock or, or whatever that is a adequate fire barrier, and you've got a good wall or ceiling or whatever. Cool. I've had a number of cases where uh, the building had uh, the house or whatever had a, a large kitchen stove with uh, an exhaust fan to exhaust several hundred or a thousand CFM of air whenever the kitchen stove was in use. Well, where do you get replacement air? If the nine times out of 10, nobody designs a makeup air system, right. so you're sucking air out of the building, and that means you've got to bring air in. And that frequently comes right through the joints in the fiberglass around the doors and windows. And I've had a few cases where the air got sucked down. Uh, well, the attic was open for ventilation, which is another issue. And the air came through all the joints and, and whatever in the fiberglass you know, product. Yeah. Well, when you run air through any insulation system, this reduces the thermal value of that insulation to zero. Ah. And a lot of people don't seem to understand this. If you put, you let air get sucked through or blown through or whatever, through the insulation, whether it's fiberglass or whatever, uh, it reduces the R value to zero. And mm -hmm. I've, I've had a lot of serious conversations with a lot of architects all over the United States explaining that to them. And they basically said, oh, my God, nobody ever told me that before. Yeah. But it's uh, I've I've seen a number of buildings where the sprinkler pipes were buried under the fiberglass bats in an attic <laughs> and in cold climates. And there's a bathroom or kitchen exhaust fan. And when they turned on those fans, the air came down through the fiberglass and froze and split the sprinkler pipes that were buried under 12 inches of fiberglass. Wow. Boy, I've seen a lot of those. And for some reason, <laughs> the building owner doesn't like it. He gets unhappy when the water starts pouring out of the sprinkler yeah. pipes all and drops his sheetrock down onto his bed. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've likely heard me refer to our roundtables program for production managers. In fact, many of the people that have been on the show are members of that and often are our most popular guests. If you're not familiar with it, several years back, we took the roundtables concept that's been so popular with Remodelers Advantage members and started groups specifically for production managers. Very similar format to what the owners are doing, but focused on production issues and really diving into best practices among some of the best remodeling companies out there. We meet twice a year for two days, collect and discuss performance metrics for each company, and we support each other throughout the year with microboards, smaller groups of your peers who meet monthly via Zoom or by phone to discuss issues and ask for input. So whether you're a business owner looking to involve your production manager or a production manager that needs help taking your department to the next level, we have a spot for you if you're interested. 
If you are interested in learning more, go ahead and email me at tim at remodelersadvantage.com and I'll tell you all about it. So Bill, uh, I, have a, I live in Delaware and we have, we have very, uh, you know, a strong four season separation, hot, hot summers, cold winters, great spring, great fall, uh, especially around uh, basements. There was always this discussion around vapor barriers and basements, uh, really depending on the basement, but it was never, um, there was a lot of gray area in the code and uh, with the um, various inspections, but um, what's your reaction when I say what everybody, a lot of contractors in our area used to say is houses have to breathe. That's okay. changed a lot, but go ahead. All right. Uh, I love the issue of basements because a lot of people are so misinformed about basement insulation. Uh, in northern climates, you insulate the basement walls, and I'll let's leave that for a minute. And you do not ever insulate the between the joists in the uh, ceiling above the crawl the basement. Uh, insulating up there in in the ceiling of the basement uh, causes all kinds of problems. First off, if you do insulate it, it must not have a vapor barrier at all because the vapor, depending upon different times of year, can be going up during part of the year and comes down the other part of the year, and you end up with soaked fiberglass above the uh, your ceiling in the basement. Now, also, there's a serious safety issue. It's very popular <clears throat> to insulate, when you insulate with naked bats in the ceiling of the basement, that they use these little spring wires to hold the insulation in place from falling it down. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I had a case in Cape Cod a few years ago where a gentleman who was on his wedding day was down in his in-law's basement getting something for the wedding, and people were walking around on the floor above, and one of these spring wires popped out and perforated his eye. Oh, my. Oh, God on the morning of his wedding and he lost the vision of that eye but i have been since been a jumping up and down telling people who have that those kind of spring wires holding their insulation in the attic uh, or the basement ceiling please don't do that it's dangerous dangerous and this man i'll tell you knows it firsthand uh so a little detail yeah, go ahead. The I'm a firm believer where you can to insulate the outside wall of the concrete foundation before you do backfilling. And what I recommend is two inches of extruded polystyrene on the uh, outside wall, and then you backfill. But then now that insulation, the styrofoam, has got to go up to the underside of the sill. Mm -hmm. uh, and then because uh, sunlight degrades most plastic foams, you've got to cover that with uh, some kind of a flashing. Generally, I recommend aluminum flashing for to cover that insulation. And if you you if it's too late to do that and the house is already built, now the next issue is how can we insulate the walls of the basement 
after the house is built. And there, what I would I frequently recommend is two inches of, say, foil-faced ISO or styrofoam or whatever glued to the concrete wall and then covered with an adequate uh, vapor, well, not vapor barrier, but covering for, for flame resistance. And the wall insulation has got to go up to the underside of the floor. Okay. Uh, a lot of people make the mistake of just taking it up to the top of the wall, but then you've got eight inches or so uh, from there to the underside of the floor where there's no insulation. I had a, a couple of houses in Massachusetts where the contractor was building two beautiful, expensive two-story homes, and he took his polyethylene vapor barrier on the first floor and ran it from the floor on the first floor up to the underside of the ceiling, the sheetrock, the, at the first floor. Then he went upstairs with another roll of polyethylene and started at the floor and went up to the underside of the sheetrock. Now, this means he had an 8-inch gap throughout the house where there was no vapor barrier. <laughs> yeah, that, and, that, joist bay, that joist bay has been a problem for years and years and years that uh, of no vapor. Well, well, the next year I got called by the owner uh, and said, my paint is peeling in a eight inch wide strip around the house. And so I went down and showed him what had gone wrong, but uh, <laughs> he couldn't keep paint on his, on his clapboards at that uh, space. And it uh, really looked strange. And a, a similar problem I had uh, at, a group of houses in Portland, Maine, where the electrical contractor, oh boy, I love electrical contractors. <laughs> when he was wiring the house, uh, in fact, there were 140 houses in this case, wiring the house, uh, he cut a hole in the vapor barrier, in the polyethylene vapor barrier, cut a hole 12 inches square. And so... He had no, and of course, never replaced it. The, hell, the electrical contractors never bother with that. <coughs> and so a year later, we had paint peeling on these 140 houses in this development, paint peeling in these spots. And I wonder, what the hell is this all about? So we took a chainsaw out of the wall and opened it up and removed the fiberglass, and here's an 8-inch square hole in the polyethylene at every duplex outlet and switch. Wow. It cost it cost the electrical contractor forty five thousand dollars to retrofit a vapor barrier. Wow. Wow. So with that question in the basement, the reason that many people I've seen do it is because they're using it as a sound barrier. Whether the basement sure. is yeah. So is there sure. an alternative way to do that? Well, you're, you're talking a sound barrier between the basement and the first floor? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I happen to do consulting work on acoustical issues also. And the major issue acoustically is to have a layer of, in the construction that is absolutely airproof with no leaks. As soon as you put in a, a 
recess light, you're screwing up uh, the acoustical system because you've got to have a continuous barrier of something for acoustics to make sure that there's no transfer of air because where you can transfer air, you can transfer sound. Okay. Am I helping? Yeah, with your yeah. that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about bathroom fans. All right? Oh, boy. Uh, I think you know, <laughs> uh, one of the big issues that there's a lot of moisture in a bathroom. And I know, yes. again, in our, pre, our pre-show discussions, we talked a little bit. This, t- talk, to, talk to us about some of the problems with bath fans and how they create okay. moisture problems. Okay. Uh, for the majority of residences... The major ventilation is via the bathroom exhaust fan. And where there is no bathroom exhaust fan, we got a problem. Where some idiot installs the ductwork for the bathroom exhaust fan and vents it into the attic or into the basement (coughs) or into the eave space. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The attic is ventilated. Isn't that okay? Just to okay. throw that hot, wet air up in the attic since the attic is <laughs> ventilated? Okay, uh, that's another topic which we'll get to in just a minute. But I can guarantee you that when you ventilate your bathroom exhaust fan into the attic or into the eave space, that by the in our, our climate, by the end of the winter, you're going to have mold big time all around at the uh, end of the duck. Yeah. And I, I am a firm believer and have been for the last 40 years that ventilating attics is counterproductive. Ooh, okay. Mm. I want to talk about that for a second. <laughs> okay. My home, we've been, my wife and I have lived in here in Maine for the last 45 years has absolutely no attic ventilation. I also have no moisture issues in my attic. And if you, uh, you've got to have a good bathroom exhaust fan, no matter what climate you're in. And an issue that I see all the time, guys, is you walk into the bathroom and on the, as you walk in adjacent to the door, there's a whole series of switches and the contractor has saved 50 bucks by putting in an El Cheapo bath exhaust fan that sounds like a B-17 taking off. (laughs) I'm really old. I remember what, in fact, I've got a model of a B-17 hanging from the ceiling in my office. Uh, If you spend another $50, you can get a really quiet bathroom exhaust fan. And then the issue becomes, for Pete's sake, don't use flex duct to vent the bathroom exhaust fan to the outdoors. It's got to be a rigid aluminum metal duct. Why? Uh, Why? What uh, because, okay, most bathroom exhaust fan guys have a one-tenth horsepower motor. Yeah. And when you add the uh, resistance that you get to airflow in a flexible duct, that little one-tenth horsepower is hard-pressed to move any significant quantities of air and moisture out of the bathroom. You've got to have a, a rigid aluminum duct and duct it outdoors. And the bathroom, 
the bathroom exhaust fan in my house uh, cost me, I think it was 110 bucks. And when it's on, you cannot hear it. Right. And yes. another issue is, uh, as I started to talk about a whole bunch of switches, you got a bunch of switches and the homeowner goes in and flips the light switch. I have uh, one switch in my bathroom, <laughs> one switch. When you go into the bathroom, the light comes on and the fan comes on with it. Okay. Yep. And uh, this is a, a major issue because I've had so many, literally hundreds and hundreds of homeowners that I've talked with, but they've called me because they've got a moisture problem. And I say, how often do you use that fan? Oh, not very often because it's so noisy. noisy. So they don't, yeah, you don't, they don't use the fan and hence they get no ventilation and no removal of moisture content. Yeah. So what about the distance? Sorry, Tim. Go ahead. What about the distance of the duct? I've always, I, I always kept it 25 feet, but isn't every L turn worth five feet of distance? Is that correct? At, At least that. Yes. And, you want to keep the duck as short as possible. Mm-hmm. And another issue that I've seen that is, oh, terrible, uh, the indigenous Americans have a housing project up north of here in Maine, and a contractor came in and put in bathroom exhaust, exhaust fans in the wall. And when the wind blew at 20 below, the wind blew through that exhaust fan uh, installation, and so every one of the owners got some polyethylene and duct tape and taped over the fan. So we no longer had any ventilation at all. The fan, the oh fan is, the fan has got to be in the ceiling and it's got to be ducted to the nearest outdoors, whether that's a wall or roof in our house. Uh, I've got a 24 inch long duct that ducks out through the roof. I have never, ever, in 45 years had a problem of rain leaking through my exhaust fan on the roof over the bathroom. Yeah, if it's roofed properly, there's no no problems there. So let's talk about, yep. uh, Bill, uh, you know, I'm sitting here thinking we're gonna have to have another show and keep talking well, about fine. this stuff, but we just don't have time to go into everything. But I do wanna explore that, uh, you know, the attic and the ventilation. So if, if I hear you right, provided that you have a good vapor barrier on the ceiling, like in your yep. world, you're in the cold main, on the ceiling that prevents vapor from going up into that attic, you don't need any ventilation. Is that is You that got it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and I have argued with the people in the co- that write the codes for some time, uh, and ASHRAE finally after listening to me rant and rave about this issue of attic ventilation, they finally did a study and paid uh, a con- researcher at uh, oh, a university in, in Illinois, I think his name was Bill Rose, and he did a study, and guess what? He found out you if you put in a vapor barrier on the ceiling, you didn't need ventilation in the attic. Wow. Uh, which confirmed what I'd been saying for years and years. So okay. put in a reason reasonable poly or whatever vapor barrier in the ceiling. And then uh, the problem, guys, is I have uh, countless occasions 
I have been called in because uh, the sheetrock in the living room had gotten wet and dropped down onto the floor. And what we found was that uh, at the eave, we had all kinds of wonderful ventilation at the eave, and the wind came in uh, from uh, Mother Nature, along with moisture, rain, snow, whatever, landed on the sheetrock 20 feet from the wall and wow. dropped the sheetrock down onto the floor. Wow. I have seen countless uh, ventilation at the ridge yep. that leaked. Oh, God, yes. Uh, I had one building that was 120 feet wide with a sloped roof, and the owner of the building had his uh, little office space on the wall of the building, and the ridge was 60 feet away. And he said to me, Mr. Lotz, I'm, there's a leak in the roof somewhere above my desk here at the edge of the building. And I said, no, it's not at the edge of the building. It's at the ridge. He said, that's impossible. I said, get me a garden hose and a ladder. <laughs> and I went up and ran water from the garden hose for quite some time on the roof over his desk. Right. No leak. Right. And then I went up uh, and climbed up the roof to the ridge and poured water uh, from the garden hose around the ridge and five minutes later, he came out and yelled, my roof's leaking, my roof's leaking. The yeah. water was coming in, windblown rain and snow at the ridge and blowing in and t gravity taking it down to the edge and yeah. dumping it on his desk. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the tough things about roof leaks is they'll migrate for a long ways oh. before they finally drop off somewhere. He, called, he had called a roofing contractor and the roofing contractor gave him a bid of $60,000 to re-roof the whole building. Oh and thank God, before he, he solidified the deal with the contractor, he called me. Yeah. And I said, okay, we're going to seal off the ridge vent, uh, which cost him about $1,000. So he saved $59,000 by hiring me. Cool. Well, Bill, we're going to have to uh, stop for today. This has been... Like I said, maybe we'll do another show in a month or two and just kind of pick up on some of these issues because I think this is such incredibly good information. I, and I, I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity just to tell us about the book uh, that's coming out and where people can get it if they're interested. Okay. Uh, the title of the book is Moisture Control and Insulation Systems in Buildings, chilled water pipes, and underground pipes. Okay. Uh, and this is basically the 400 pages of my life. Wow. Uh, of the thousands of buildings I've looked at and troubleshoot with moisture problems, insulation failure, et cetera, et cetera. And I put it under 400 pages of, in this book. Yeah. Uh, it has chapters on houses, uh, I've done oh some interesting work for David Rockefeller. What a sweet guy he is uh, when he built his house here in Maine. But uh, we talk about metal buildings. We talk about all kinds of vapor barrier issues. We talk about all kinds of moisture issues, all kinds of insulation failures, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, as you can tell, I'm I tend to be uh, a, a 
I tend to talk too much. <laughs> uh, well, Bill, I, Bill, you haven't talked too much on this show, man. This has been fantastic. But I need to, I, you need to let us know where we can get it. Is it, is it okay. online or how do, how do we get a hold of it? Okay. My editor, Joe Huff, is in Vancouver. My uh, publisher is in Los Angeles. It was just type, typeset in India, and it is now in, being printed. Okay. And they're, they're telling me that it's going to be available from the press uh, sometime next month through Amazon, and it's available through Barnes & Noble and so forth. Uh, the book is retailing at 90 bucks. And if you want to do the E-edition, it's 87. Okay. All right, good. But Just so everybody knows, so so basically we're talking about by the end of March 2021, the book will be available. Some people will listen to this podcast at various times. So I just want to make sure there's a date. Yeah. So, uh, so Bill, um, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time. And like I said, you haven't talked too much, man. In fact, I kind of wish we could just sit here and talk for another hour, but we'll do that on another time and, and bring up some other ideas. And I think the topic is well worth having some more conversation about. So I Great. just want to say thank you so much for being with yeah. us and uh, we'll, we'll talk again. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Take care now. Bye-bye. Tim, we do tend to get fired up when we get into the technical. <laughs> Man, you know what? I wish I, I wish I could just go like, I love this and I love that and I love that, but I'm just almost speechless. The amount yeah. of information that he has in his brain about trouble spots and how to fix them and what to do and what not to do is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, I just, I don't even know where to start to say what I, what I liked about it. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's important is that he's writing a book. Yeah. He's sharing the information. Yeah. A lot of people that are uh, getting older or they're, you know, they're getting to a point where they're going to retire or whatever. They're filled with great information. That's why yeah. come on our show, write a book, teach a class, speak at shows whatever it is, but this is great information. I mean, uh, you know, I, I could have asked 30 more questions. Yeah, and, and, and we will try to get him back and, and, and go down a couple of different roads so that we're not covering the same thing over again. Yep. We'll, we'll have him back. On. And we were connected through his editor, Joseph Huff, and thank you to yep. Joseph. He's yep. uh, continued listening to the show and promotion of the show. Uh, extra thanks to him. And remember, at the Tim Fowler Show, we're always trying to eliminate it is what it is from your vocabulary. This has been another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.